Mark 8 is, uh, is where we'll be this morning. Um, now that comes as probably no surprise uh, to those of you who have been with us because we've been preaching through um, the book of Mark for some time. Uh, I do have on my schedule, though, to take a little detour away from Mark just for a few weeks. Uh, in two weeks, uh, I'm going to begin a, uh, a mini-series uh, because we're at a natural transition in the text. This entire book, up till now, these first eight chapters of this book have been leading us to see who Jesus is. Jesus has done He's done all of these miracles. Uh, he's, he's healed all of the sick and, and caused the blind to see and raised the dead and all these sort of things, cast out demons and fed multitudes and all of this in order to give us the revelation needed to show us who He is. And it's at this point, this is a natural point in the book that, uh, that things will begin to change. He will begin to go from revealing who he is uh, to revealing his plan. Uh, John MacArthur put it this way. He said he's up to this point been revealing the man, and he will go from here forward revealing the plan. And so uh, we're going to uh, transition there, but in the middle of this, we're going to take a little detour, and for about eight or nine weeks, uh, I'm going to preach a mini-series about all of what is, what is involved when we are saved. What happens as redemption is applied to us? And so um, I, I would encourage you to, uh, to get ready for that. Some of you say, well, I'm ready. I've been ready to take a break from Mark for a while, you know. Um, and, and that's okay. Um, you know, studying through it, I'm enjoying every bit of it. But uh, I understand that you spend so long in one place that sometimes you need to take a break and, and get away and look at something a little different. But uh, the picture I have of this this week that um, I actually ran this by my wife. By the way, we need to be praying for our, our youth. This whole section feels really weird uh, for them to be gone, but they are in, at Chili Pepper uh, in Tennessee. Uh, so they're in God's country. They're just not here, you know, this morning um, in God's house of worship. Anyway, sorry, that just went right over. But I ran this by my wife this morning because um, sometimes these... these um, analogies, these pictures, these illustrations come to my head, and, uh, and sometimes they're not worth saying, you know? Uh, those of you who teach understand what I mean. But here's the kind of the picture that, uh, that I have of this this week. It's, it's as if you and I are, that we've been from chapter one till now, at the bottom of a staircase. Not simply a straight staircase, but one that that has a turn, therefore it has a landing. And we've been at the bottom of the staircase, and we could hear from the bottom someone coming down. We couldn't quite see who it was, but we could hear someone coming down the steps, much like whenever I was a kid and Dad would get home from work and I could hear him coming up from the basement. We, we've been able, as we walk through Scripture together, to hear someone coming down the stairs. But it wasn't until this point today in Scripture that we see the person coming down the stairs turn. He hits the landing and turns, and we see who he is. We've been able to know that it's Jesus, but there's a deeper understanding here. The disciples today will understand who he really is, 
who he's been trying to show them who he really was. But the temptation is for us that when he comes down halfway down the steps and turns on the landing and we see who he is, the temptation is for us to run up to where he is. But the reality is we can't do that. If we were to embrace the Jesus at the landing at this point, it would be an incomplete Jesus. Up to this point, he would simply be the miracle worker. Up to this point, he would simply be the teacher. Up to this point, he would simply be the Christ, the Messiah, come to set Israel free from Roman rule. We must remain at the bottom of the steps throughout the rest of the book while Jesus descends the rest of the way all the way to the cross. Because without the cross, there is no gospel. Now, my wife gave me permission to go ahead and share that, so if it wasn't good, blame it on her. All right? Let's look at this together this morning. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, this morning, I am inadequate to communicate the truth that is your word. Lord, your word doesn't contain truth. Your word is truth. And God, I'm preaching this morning to people in one of two conditions. Either they are in the position of the disciples who have had their minds opened and they understand that you are God and they have been saved and had their sins forgiven, yet their understanding, as well as mine, is not all the way complete yet. Or, God, I am preaching to people here who are still in darkness and who cannot see these things naturally who cannot understand the truth of the gospel unless you make them understand. So God, this morning, I pray that for those in both camps, God, that you would make it very plain, that you would make it very clear, that you would speak to us what you would have us to hear this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to preach this text this morning in three different points. The first is, who do they say that I am? Well, this is sort of a natural outline. 
the they there, that's the very question that Jesus asked them. He said, who do they say that I am? Well, what we have to answer is, who is they? Is Jesus here talking to his disciples? Is he pulling aside one of them and saying, who do the rest of these guys say that I am? Well, no. He's specifically addressing the people in the villages from wh- in, in which they are passing through. It says here that he continued with his disciples to the villages and through the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Well, you and I would probably pass over that simply as a geographical location, but it's important that we stop there and figure out a little bit about who this they is. They, from Caesarea Philippi, uh, are an interesting group. Caesarea Philippi was about 25 miles north of Galilee, uh, north of the Sea of Galilee. This meant that, uh, that they had walked these 25 miles to get where they were. They were still considered uh, Galilee, Jewish territory, but it was predominantly inhabited by uh, Gentiles. Uh, they had a general disdain for, for anything Jewish. It was, a, it was a hodgepodge that was heavy on the Gentile people there. It was, uh, its name had formerly been Paneus. Uh, it was named after um, a, the, uh, the, the Greek mythical god Pan. You ever heard of a Pan flute? You ever seen the creature? He's off the Chronicles of Narnia who is half goat and half man. It's the god Pan. The Pan was this half goat, half man creature who played a flute who was supposedly the god of the herds. And uh, this, this place where he was in had formerly been Paneus, named after this god. It had since been changed, though, by Philip the Tetrarch when the, when the, uh, the area had been divided by the Romans and given uh, to Philip the Tetrarch, who was controlling, uh, who was ruling on behalf of the, the, uh, the Israelites, the Jews, uh, for the Romans in this area. He had renamed this area what we find it as today, Caesarea Philippi. The reason he named it Caesarea Philippi is because he named it half to honor Caesar and half to honor himself, Caesarea, Caesar, and Philippi, Philip. He's named it after both. I've already mentioned that this had been, at one point, the home of this worship of Pan, the god Pan, this mythical Greek god, the god of the herds, who was half goat, half man. It's where we get our word panic. The belief was that the sudden appearance of Pan, this half goat, half man creature, would caused such alarm that it was, it was equivalent with a stampede. It's where we get our word panic. Um, this, this was what was going on there previously. They worshiped the god Pan. Currently, it, had, it was no longer the center of worship for Pan. Now, when Jesus is walking through, it is the center of or, or one place where Caesar is worshiped. It's emperor worship. They have moved past this mythical god to this mortal god, this man. They are worshiping him. The Caesar was believed to be God. In the not too distant future, the, uh, the, the city or the region would undergo another name change. And it would be named after or for Nero. Well, Nero was the, if you know anything about church history, was the great persecutor of the Christians. 
And so we see here, and I believe that Jesus has all of this in mind as he's walking through Caesarea Philippi with his disciples, and he asks this question, who do they say that I am? Because I think he wants them to understand that this people has a great history of false religion. They worship what is false. They worship what they've made up in their mind. They worship what is like them in in the fact that they worship Caesar. And they wind up, one day they will wind up worshiping the God of this world as represented by Nero. This was a people not too different than the people that you and I rub shoulders with every day. Isn't America just about like this? Isn't our world about like this, that, that they worship what they, what they make up? They get their eyes on somebody, and they begin to worship somebody or something. Don't we live in a day where the Christian faith is under attack, unlike any other faith in America and in the world? Just watch the news, and you see it. And it's to this people, and I don't want to camp out here too long, but it's to this people that Jesus says to them, he wants them to see these people, and I can, I can just picture them walking through and them looking and seeing these people and Jesus saying, who do, who do they say that I am? And I think the question is for us as well. Who do they, who does America say that God is? Just think about it. Well, the answer came from the disciples. He said, who do they say that I am? And then they began to answer. They said, well, some say you are John the Baptist. Others say you are Elijah. And there's some that say you're one of the prophets. Matthew's version of this this story says that uh, some say you are Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Others have pointed to Moses. They said John the Baptist because John the Baptist was supposed to be the forerunner of Jesus. He, in fact, proclaimed himself to be the forerunner. In fact, if you think back, you remember the story of Herod. Herod was scared to death when he heard about Jesus, thinking that this was John the Baptist come back from the dead, come back to haunt him. There were some that were saying this was John the Baptist come back from the dead, the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah. When they said Elijah, they said Elijah because he was a prophet who also pointed to Jesus, who had done amazing, miraculous things, who had called down fire and other things, who also was, according to rumor of the day, supposed to return prior to the Messiah. He was supposed to come right before the Messiah would come. There were others that said, well, maybe not John the Baptist, maybe not Elijah, but maybe one of the other prophets, Jeremiah, who would also point toward the Christ. Moses, who would point toward the Christ. We see this in the fact that Moses fed the the, the Israelites in the wilderness. And Jesus had done the same thing in feeding of the multitudes. But what's the problem with this? Well, the problem is, and, and as I studied this, I, I came to it and I thought, what, what is significant about each individual name? Is there something specific that God wants us to see about John the Baptist, about Elijah, about the prophets? The more I studied it, the more I realized, no. There's nothing unique about any of them. There's nothing unique about their message. What is unique in them saying that that Jesus was John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets is that they were saying the same thing just using different names. They were saying that Jesus was not the Messiah. That's the point. 
And that's what our world says as well. It's what America says, that Jesus is a great teacher, that he does wonderful things, that he's a great role model, but he's certainly not God. He's certainly not Christ. This was the reasoning that that they used in this day. They, uh, They clearly saw that he was a prophet sent from God. We saw this in Nicodemus when he came to Jesus and said, we know that you are a prophet sent from God. They, they knew that about him. They couldn't deny that. They, there was something in his teaching. He taught as one who had authority. But the Christ, the one who had been promised, the one who was anointed, the chosen one of God, the, the one that Israel had waited and waited and waited for, this couldn't be. No, no. He's a prophet, but not the Christ. And the reason they said this was because he didn't look like the Christ. I mean, after all, he was poor. I mean, they were expecting someone to come who would liberate them from Roman tyranny. They were expecting someone who would continue the Davidic throne, who would come with with great power and great wealth and sit on the throne and establish the throne of David forever the way they wanted it established. Jesus didn't fit that bill. He was poor. He had no way they could see to the throne. Not only was he poor, but it really wasn't much of a kingdom. I mean, he had very few followers. Oh, yeah, there were those, there were, there were the crowds of 25,000 and 20,000 that would flock to him. And we've read of, of how they would press in on him to the point where he was afraid he was about to be crushed. And he got into a boat and pushed back so that he could get some distance between he and, and them. But they weren't real followers. They may have came for the miracles. They may have came for the bread, for the healing, and those sort of things. But in John 6, we read of Jesus beginning to say things like, I am the bread of life. If anyone wants to come after me, he must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And it was at that point that they began to leave in droves. I mean, this couldn't be the Messiah. Jesus, the Christ... There's no kingdom. He's not leading a kingdom. He's not acting like a king. I mean, he wasn't rallying the people. He wasn't building an army. And in fact, there were times when he could have. There were times when Jesus became aware that they were about to come and take him by force and make him their king. They would have at that point done whatever he said. He could have then said, it's time to attack. But instead, it was in those moments when he disappeared, when he withdrew, when he disappeared to the other side of the sea, when he sent them away almost supernaturally. He didn't act like a king. He didn't look like a king. Even John the Baptist became confused. You remember John the Baptist? John the Baptist, when he was out baptizing in the wilderness and Jesus appears, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But then later on, John the Baptist found himself in prison and would eventually lose his head. But while he's in prison, he sends some of his disciples. He was so confident before, but then he sends some of his own disciples to Jesus and to ask the question, Are you really the one or should we look for another? 
He, he didn't fit the bill. He just didn't look like Christ. That's why they said, oh, he's a prophet, but he's not the Christ. They were willing to say anything except who he really was. Our world is really no different. Our world, in fact, you see this in pop culture. It pops up from time to time. There's books that have been written uh, with the titles, things like, um, They Love Jesus But Not the Church. You see T-shirts pop up that say, uh, Jesus is my homeboy. Um, people like Madonna and, and other people wearing those shirts. And Jesus is, is, is cool and trendy for what they want him to be. They want him simply to be a prophet or a teacher or a miracle worker. They want, to be, they want to have someone that they can go to who will give them what they want. They are no different from the Pharisees asking for a sign. They want someone to model their life after when it's convenient. They want someone who accepts them for who they are and doesn't require anything of them. And this is who they say Jesus is. And I would say to you that there are some of you in this room who are saying things similar to this. There are some of you in this room who Jesus is not your God. He is not your Lord. In fact, it brings us to the next question. It's the it's the pivotal place where Jesus presses in with his disciples. He is so comfortable with them, and they are in so many places uncomfortable with his pressing. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets, Jesus turns and says, but who do you say that I am? You see, that's really the right question. Who do we say that he is? I say we because those of us who are here this morning gathered in this house of worship at least appear from the outside as if we're on the same road as these disciples. We are followers of Jesus trying to, trying to figure this thing out and trying to follow him but not always knowing how. And the reality is that in this room there are real disciples and there are false disciples. And then there are those who claim not to be a disciple at all. You are simply here at someone else's beckoning or because you are inquisitive. We at least appear to be on the same road as Peter and the others. If Jesus saw it necessary to press the question to them, then I think it's just as necessary for us to press the question in on ourselves. Too often, listen to me, too often, we are guilty of coming to Scripture as if it were simply a collection of stories. And we allow it to remain about the people on the pages. And I want you today to write yourself into the story. I want you to picture yourself there. I want you to picture the eyes of Jesus locking with your eyes as he asked the question, Who do you say that I am? That's the important question for us today. You know, it does us no good. 
It does us absolutely no good. I, I could come up here and I could get a lot of amens if I were to talk about all the different evils of America and how America is going to hell in a handbasket and all these things, and they are godless as they could be. And everybody would say, amen, preacher, preach it all. And it would do us no good because what we need to do this morning is we need to say, what about me? And that's why at the end of every service, we have a time where we ask you to reflect on what has been said, not for the person next to you. We've not paired you up in small groups and said, okay, now you go over and you tell so-and-so what this requires of them. I'm asking you this morning, as your pastor, ask yourself this question. Allow Jesus' words to ring into your ears. Who do you say that he is? Faith, the, the point, I think, of this, one of the, the points, is that faith must be an individual responsibility. It must be personal. Some of you are here and you have grown up in this church. Your mom and dad came to this church. Your grandparents came to this church. And you've just always been a Christian. I'm just telling you something right now. Hear me as plain as I can possibly make it, there is no one who has always been a Christian. In fact, the Bible teaches something very different. The Bible teaches that we were all born in Adam, that we are descendants of Adam, and that when Adam sinned in the garden, his rebellion launched us off into a world that is prone toward rebellion and sin, and also we have his nature. We are prone to rebellion. And that as soon as you and I are capable of making moral decisions, that we also break God's laws, that we have rebelled against him. There is not one of us in this room who has always, always, always been a Christian. And the reality is that until that day, and I say day because there is a day when, when faith becomes faith and you are forgiven of your sin and made right in the eyes of God. Until that day, you are lost. You stand condemned. There is a real hell with your name on it. And it is not a place where you will go and have a good time with your buddies. It's not the place where there will be a Budweiser billboard on the way in that says, bring some buds. And that's the picture that a lot of people have of hell. Hell is the eternal wrath, punishment, of a holy and righteous God on those of us who are sinful to the core. We have, I think, in trying to define who Jesus is, who do we say that he is, I think we have made Jesus in our own image. We have made Jesus after our own liking. 
Peter's confession was correct when he said, you are the Christ, but it was incomplete because he would go on to rebuke Jesus when Jesus began to talk about having to go to the cross. If his could be incomplete, if Peter could be guilty of making Jesus in his own image a Christ that would deliver them from Roman tyranny, then you and I can be guilty of making a Christ in our own image as well. How have we stopped at an incomplete confession of Jesus and made him after our own liking? Well, I think it shows up in preaching that says, he has a wonderful plan for your life. And if you just pray this prayer, everything is going to be well. And you'll go to heaven one day. Where in the world did we get that? Where in the world did we get this idea that we could say, okay, everyone bow your heads and close your eyes. and If you just pray this prayer after me, you'll be saved today. Everyone raise your hand. I see you. God bless you there. God bless you there. Where is that in Scripture? That's not the gospel. That's not the Jesus of Scripture. This is reflected. It shows up in the songs that we sing. We sing songs oftentimes, not the songs that we sing. I think Ethan does a wonderful job. Hear me. I think Ethan does a wonderful job. And our musicians do incredible jobs of Choosing songs that put all of the focus on Christ the way he's revealed in Scripture and in the Gospel. But sometimes in the songs that we want to sing, we want to sing the songs that make us feel warm and fuzzy. We want to sing the songs that are about us. We want to sing the songs that are about the sweet by and by. That really is about our retirement plan. It shows up in the books that we read. If you go to the local Christian bookstore and you go to the, the, the bestsellers and the top ten, you will find that many of them are nothing more than self-help. You will find that many of them are nothing more, they're, they're nothing more than just exercises in narcissism. It shows up in the sermons that we like. I'm so thankful for a church that will allow me to stand here and preach through the book of Mark, verse by verse. I'm so glad that I don't have to get creative every week telling you how to do this and how to do that. And ten steps for this and four things that you should do here. I'm so glad that you let me come to the Word of God and just show you what God says in His Word. It shows up in the things that we pursue. Where we spend our money and where we spend our time. The things that we give our relationships to. They reveal who we really think Jesus is. The biblical gospel is not this gospel of Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life and just wants you to be happy. That comes crashing to a sad, tragic end. The biblical gospel says that you and I have sinned 
We have rebelled. We have rejected God and gone our own way. We have said, so what you created us? We're going to do whatever we want to do because we know what's right. And you say, well, I've never said that to God. In your actions and in your nature, you have. God has every right to exercise judgment on you. He has every right to condemn you. He has every right and beyond the right, the responsibility to bring justice because He is just. And He will. But thank God that He sent His Son who knew no sin, who knew no evil, who had never, it had never come out into his existence to rebel against his father. He prays in the garden. He sweats drops of blood. He can't stand the thought of going to the cross to bear the sins of the world. But nevertheless, what, not what I will, but what you will. And he goes to the cross, and it's not about the nails. It is about the fact that God poured the sin of the world your sin and my sin on his son poured out the wrath and the punishment that was meant for you and I and he took it all and you don't have to face punishment anymore you have been forgiven in Christ alone you've been made right in Christ alone but the biblical gospel does not stop there because he doesn't just want a confession out of your mouth he wants you to follow him where he went who is he really we see this almost through we see this in the latter part of this section in verse 29 the second part of 29 Peter answered him you are the Christ and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Who Jesus is really is the Jesus who did not stop at the landing of the stairwell. We will come back after our break. And we will go the rest of the way through Mark. And we will see Jesus go all the way to the bloody cross. We will see him go into the tomb. We will see him spend three days there. And we will see him be raised from the dead. Appear to those afterwards for a certain amount of time. Then ascend, go back to the Father where he is now the one mediator between God and man who makes us acceptable to him. And one day he will return to bring judgment. And Peter needed still more revelation. Peter needed to understand that he wasn't just the political Messiah. He wasn't just the one who would, who would deliver them from Roman tyranny, but he was also the Son of God. Matthew records Peter's confession as he is the Christ, the Son of God. 
But somehow he had forgotten what Isaiah had written about in Isaiah 53 that says, For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Peter somehow had lost sight of that. We must never lose sight of the fact That Jesus is not simply calling us to a wonderful life. He is calling us to lay down our lives so that we might have his. Peter rebukes him. Look at verse 32. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus asked, asked them the question, who do they say that I am? And he turned it and he said, who do you say that I am? And then he showed them who he really was. And for us to say anything different than who he really is, is satanic. This is the harshest rebuke that Jesus ever gives to a follower. R. Kent Hughes put it this way, he said, They were all appalled, but they all kept their silence, all except one. Peter took him aside and rebuked him. The language here suggests that Peter did this with an air of protective superiority, as if he may have put his arm around the Messiah, put his arm around Jesus, and with a stage whisper, said, Come here, Jesus. Of course, I believe you are the Messiah, but you've got your information wrong. You've got to stop this or you'll lose all your credibility, Jesus. Now it was the Savior who was revulsed. As he spun to face Peter, he saw that the other disciples were approving of what Peter was saying. His explosive rebuke was for them as well. Out of my sight, Satan, you don't have in mind the things of God but the things of men. These were the harshest words Jesus ever spoke to a devoted, well-meaning heart. Jesus must have, in this moment, when Peter pulls him aside and rebukes him, he must have saw in the eyes of Peter what reminded him of what he saw in the devil in the wilderness. It must have, probably, since Jesus was completely human as well as completely God and experienced temptation in every way like you and I have. It must have been tempting for him to agree with Peter and take the path without suffering. He must have just for a split second maybe said that would be much easier. But he stayed to the course. You say the wrong thing about Jesus, 
for two reasons. Number one, you say the wrong thing about who Jesus is either because you are like Peter and you simply don't fully understand all of what the Christ means yet. Peter didn't understand that he would have to go and suffer. This didn't make sense. After all, he was the Christ. Why would he have to suffer? Why would he have to die? You may be like him and not fully understand all of who Jesus is yet. But if you are a believer, if he has opened your eyes and allowed you to understand and borne faith into your heart, you will come to understand completely. You are on a journey. And that's the picture that we saw last week of Jesus healing the, the blind man in two phases. You say only and all, we must be careful to say only and all of what the Bible says about Jesus. And when we, uh, when we do that, when we seek to say only what Scripture says and all of what Scripture says about who Jesus is, then we must pray that God helps us to understand it more and more and more. That's why we come together each week. And that's why you read your Bibles daily. And when we find ourselves, like Peter, not quite understanding and having the audacity to make Jesus in our own image, we must not stay in that, but we must, as quickly as possible, repent. Jesus, I am sorry for making you be conformed to my image. Jesus, I want to know more of who you really are, and I want you to make me more, more, and more like you. You may say the wrong thing, though, about Jesus for another reason. You may say the wrong thing about who Jesus is because you are still blinded. Because you are still a slave to Satan. You belong to him, and you're still blinded to the true identity of Jesus. Listen to me. It's what we saw back all through this book. If you turn back to Romans chapter 8, verses 11 through 13, Jesus has done all of these wonderful things, and they say to Jesus, Jesus, give us a sign. His response to them was, he sighed deeply, and then he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation, and he left them. The reality is, hear me on this and I'm through, hear me. The reality is that today you have enough revelation to know who the real Jesus is. And will you by faith, will you by faith receive the gift of the gospel? Will you by faith come and say, Jesus, you are the Christ? Or will you in your hard-heartedness and in your sin say I don't believe that you are the Christ I can accept that you are a prophet but I just can't believe that you are the son of God the reality is that you will be held responsible for that for those who are in Christ 
All judgment has been poured out on him. But for those who reject Christ, await the day of judgment when the wrath of God will be poured out on you for your rejection of the Son. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning, I pray, God, that you would be be seen by those who are in this room to be exactly who you are. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would indeed come. You would apply what's been said this morning. You would open ears and eyes and minds and that you would bring life to people in this room this morning. God, I pray for those of us who have who have constructed you after our own image. God, I pray today that we would repent. Lord, I pray that you would move among us for your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We want you to reflect on what you've heard today. Just as I ask you to press in all throughout this sermon and ask yourself this question, who do you say Jesus is, I'm giving you now even more time to think about it. And after just a little bit of time, I'll be back up here at the front. And if you need to come and have someone help you in how you would repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ, I'll be here to help lead you through that. It's not about a prayer. It's not about words. It is about faith. I pray that the Spirit of God would have his way in your life today. Let's reflect on what God would have us do. Oh.
Thank F.E. Hendricks uh, to come and close us out uh, with a word of, word of prayer. It's been good to be here this morning. Amen? Amen. I challenge you to come back tonight and uh, go out and live the life that Christ has given you this week. F.E., if you'll close us. Father, we thank you for being so good to us. We are so undeserving, but you still just pour out your blessing upon us week by week. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, into the world that he gave his life so that we might have life more abundant. We pray, Father, now as we leave this place that we will carry your word with us so that whatever we do this week might be pleasing in your sight. For it's in thy name we pray. Amen.